0: And here's the best part your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.
2: Because those doors are not going to stay wide open, but enough of us can push them open. Or, like Ava DuVernay said once when I invited her to Spelman, we can build our own doors.
1: Hey folks, it's Karen Mahorn, a.k.a. The Blurred Girl, and welcome back to The Blurred Girl podcast. Now, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or a fan of horror, this is the episode for you. Now, this is another episode to The Blurred Girl Live. In fact, it was recorded last July, but it's actually pretty timely because this week it was announced that my guests, Tanana Reeve-Dew and her husband, Stephen Barnes, are going to be executive producers on a new show, Coming to Shudder this fall called Horror Noir. Now, if the show sounds familiar, that's because the documentary version of Horror Noir came out in 2019 and was co produced by Tanana Reed Danielle Burroughs, and Ashley Blackwell. Now, Ashley's the person who created Graveyard Shift Sisters, and that's the website that's dedicated to Black women in horror. So you should definitely check that out. All of this was based on a book written by Dr. Robin Means, called Horror Noir, Blacks in Horror Films. She's also going to be executive producer, I think, on the series. It's going to be an anthology series, horror series, written by black folks, starring black folks. I'm here for it. It's fantastic. And by the way, the movie was directed by Xavier Bergen, if you uh, want to check it out on Shudder. This episode like I said, was recorded last July when Tanana Reeve and Steven came on the show to talk about the the work that they were doing with Jordan Peele on his new show at the time, Twilight Zone. They talk about not just the craft of writing, but the business of writing. Now, if you are interested in watching the video version of this episode, it is actually up on YouTube right now. I will be live streaming again also on my Twitch channel, an encore presentation of it. And if you're not watching The Blur Girl live already. You should definitely check that out twice a week, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays and 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern on Thursdays at twitch.tv slash The Girl. Uh, and it's actually a pretty lengthy episode, so I'm going to keep my little intro here pretty short. So after we pay some bills, up next, my interview with writing and producing team Tanana Reeve Dew and Stephen Barnes listen if you have bad credit or no credit i'm telling you the self credit app is a way to build your credit history now after the dumpster fire that was 2020 as well as some mounting health insurance bills that i had from years ago my credit was pretty much tanked and i was able to raise it 35 points since the beginning of this year i'm not exaggerating 35 points and it's so simple to use you simply open a self-credit builder account and deposit a small amount of money in it and then for as little as five bucks a month you pay the money back automatically through the app then self reports your credit to all three credit agencies that's it it's that simple like i don't even think about it and my credit has jumped 35 points low credit no credit it doesn't matter use the self app today and build your credit and savings and get back on track it's available on ios as well as android i have a link in my show notes for anyone who's interested check it out Winning writers and producers Tanana reeve do and Stephen Barnes on the show to talk about their work and their love of horror and fantasy genres. Tanana reeve do is an award-winning author who teaches black horror and Afrofuturism at UCLA. She is an executive producer on Shudder's groundbreaking documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. And this is an amazing documentary. If you haven't watched this, you need to go get Shudder. They give you one month free, do it, watch this. Um, She's also written some amazing sci-fi and horror books, including My Soul to Keep, Living Blood, Ghost Summer. There's tons of them. Stephen Barnes, her husband, is also an award-winning writer in his own right. He's been writing prose and for TV for almost 40 years, including Stargate SG-1, Andromeda, Ben 10, Alien Force. He's also written several sci-fi and horror novels himself, including the award-winning Lion's Blood, which got the seal of approval from the late great Octavia Butler herself. Now, together, Tanana Reeve and Stephen wrote an amazing episode of The Twilight Zone in season two on CBS All Access called A Small Town. It was starring Damon Waynes Jr. And uh, we're going to get into all that tonight. So, welcome to the show, Tanana Reeve du and Stephen Barnes. Greetings. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Yay! I'm excited. Yes, yay. So, excited. Yay. <laughs> so um, I got to start off by asking I know you've collaborated on, on several things, but you also collaborated on a horror thriller book called Devil's Wake, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. Yes, and we did.
1: Doesn't that book start with a pandemic and then the whole world turns upside down?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. People take a diet pill at the same time they take a flu shot. And if you do that, bad things happen.
2: Yeah, we decided to try to explain where zombies came from, although we never call them zombies. And it's so funny. We didn't think of it so much as a pandemic book because we just wanted to tell a zombie story. But in, in recent meetings with our manager, he was like, well, you know, we have to be careful with pandemic stories right now. It's like, oh, right. That is a pandemic story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So I got to ask, what have the two of you been doing during the the lockdown, the pandemic? You're in California, right?
0: Yes. Yes. The worst thing about the pandemic is that the days tend to be very similar one to another, and that creates a sensation of time passing more rapidly. You know the the sensation that you you know as you get older it seems like time passes more rapidly it's because there's this thing called the storage key phenomena psychologically where you your brain will make symbols of things that you do to kind of save space it's like a like a compression routine and if you're doing the same thing every day you look back and a whole week just evaporates or a month just evaporates so it's there has been a lot of trying to do things that are a little different Every day, so that my brain has something new, so that it stores the day as being it stores a day as being an actual event rather than just a blip. Um, yeah, what, what, what about you, T?
2: How, how are you? Yeah, there, there's this? a line we just rewatched *Contagion* because in the beginning we thought it was cute to watch pandemic movies, and then I remembered I'm a hy- hypochondriac, and I was having these panic attacks at night, so I had to stop watching pandemic movies. But there's this great line in *Contagion* where the girl says, "I wish there was a shot to stop the passage of time." It's like, oh, that is so real. And so dead on my issue in the very beginning was just being terrified that i was gonna even last night i had a little phlegm in my throat and i was like how did i get covid (laughs) this is a mind this is a thought going through my mind as i'm trying to go to sleep so i do have to fight off panic and hypochondria that any little tickle any little sniffle a headache because the symptoms are just so vast that that, that means in six weeks so I'm going to be on a ventilator about to die alone, uh, so I have to wrestle with that, and I've had to do more affirmations, okay. affirmations, gratitude, just trying to like deal with my fears, And but it's very motivating with my writing, I have to say that. It does keep me writing because it's like, i got to get this done before I die. <laughs>
1: Oh my God! Let's see. Okay, for the people who are not aware in the chat, Tanana Reef and Stephen are married. Even though it doesn't look like they are in the same space, they are in the same space. So this is hilarious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait a minute!
1: And I'm and I'm Why also I am shocked. Like that, on the couch. <laughs> I'm also shocked to hear that. To that, that that the two of you, that's an on review have these panic attacks and all these things make your mind spiral out of control and you panic because you write such good horror. And the two of you have done some great psychological horror. Is this like, is the source material coming from your dreams or something?
2: I, I think I write horror because I have this fearful streak, you know? From the time I was a kid, I had a very strong sense of my own mortality, just lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling that, oh my gosh, one day, I'm going to be old, you know, and all those sorts of things that kids generally don't think about. That was always in my mind. Um, And in fact, I alluded to that in my first novel, The Between, with the John Keats poem that begins when I have fears that I will cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain or whatever. Um, So I think it's because I'm a scaredy cat that I write horror, I'm really trying to create characters who frankly are a lot braver than I am, (laughs) who think better on their feet, who are more resourceful than I am as role models over and over and over again, because it's not going to be zombies, but I I guess I felt it's always going to be something. And we're learning in 2020, the horror, it can be real.
1: Absolutely. Um, And actually some of the reality of some of what we've been seeing has been obviously police brutality which is not new um it's very interesting because i actually saw a a speech that you gave like i think it was 2014 or 2015 tonight or even you were talking about worrying about you know our kids going in the street and things like that because of what at what might happen to them at the hands of the police what is it like trying to be creative in this time and how do you marry your your creative side with your activism
2: um i thank you for that question my my late mother patricia Stevens-Dew and my father who's 85 now john Dew, were both civil rights activists in the 1960s and continued to be lifelong activists so i had very strong role models in terms of trying to have real impact in the world and i'm just grateful every day that they didn't think i was wasting my time as a writer Because I often say if they had told me I was wasting my time, I would not be a writer. Or it would have taken me a long time to come to the point of accepting that I was a writer. So I was very lucky to have that support and also very explicitly told that representation matters by my parents. So I do marry those aspects as much as possible. In fact, I just finished a seven-year novel writing project called The Reformatory which, frankly, I wanted to stop writing many, many times. It's set in 1950, which is not a fun year to be hanging out in. It's about children, so it was really tough for me to have mean things happening to children. But it's basically about the Dozier School in Marianna, Florida. It's the same school that Colson Whitehead wrote about in The Nickel Boys, but mine has ghosts, is, is how I'll pitch it. But, but really, the point was to just create a liberation story. So whenever I felt myself flagging, The research was bringing me down the story was bringing me down i'd see a picture of tamir rice the 12 year old boy who was shot to death by police in cleveland with no warning Mm -hmm. because he was Mm -hmm. playing with a toy gun or sandra bland you know it's just because it's not about 1950 i kept telling myself it's about now these issues this book will help people understand the lineage of the kinds of policing and justice system issues that we're still trying to figure out how to grapple with now
1: Um, how about you, Steven, is it, is it hard being creative right now with, with everything going on?
0: You know, I, I don't have any intense moments, no burnouts where things just aren't working, but there is more of a sense that I've been thrown into a little bit of a lower gear that I'm pulling, you know, that there's more stress. Um, I am, I'm a very regimented person. I have a lot of routine in my life. I wake up, I meditate. I go through very specific things. I interact on social media, I work out, uh, and then there is a, a minimum amount of work. I have to get done every day and that's the, you know, you, you have to do at least one sentence every day. So if you, if you do that, then what you find is that you have set the, you've set the tone to do a lot more than just a single sentence. So yes, the, the stress is there. but stress doesn't hurt you. It's the strain that hurts you. The, the difference between stress and strain is stress is the pressure that you're under. If I was to take this piece of paper and push it, the stress from a, an engineering point of view is the pressure per unit area, right? But strain is deformation per unit length. It's the strain that hurts you. So I have a lot of different things that I do over the course of the day to, to prevent stress stress from becoming strain, there's meditation and visualization and affirmations and just getting up and moving exercise and making sure to to interact with my family talk to people that i love remember my purpose in life why am i doing these things and the more the more your actions over the course of a day are not about you but you're seeing how you're benefiting your family your community you're trying to communicate with the world you're trying to to be right in the eyes of the divine you know the, the more you have things that are larger than you that motivate you the easier it is to wake up in the morning and realize oh these are the things i have to do this is what i have to take care of there are people to teach there are people to help there are stories to tell there are things to be done and when you've got that then you you actually can turn the stress into energy you know you turn that fear into energy which is what it's supposed to be Your fear exists you know in in your system to warn you that it's time to run or time to fight the it turns into depression when it feels like there's you know no one to fight and nowhere to run so it's critical that every day you can see you know at least one step you can take that will move you in the direction that you need to go and if you have that then you get that done and then once you've taken one step sometimes it's easier to take another and then another and then another
1: Perhaps okay i'm going to Right. I, I, I'm gonna need him to take a class. No, I was listening I was like, <laughs> every morning and take it, and then I have to meditate, and then I'm like, "Well, let me let me show
0: you." In all honesty, <laughs> the the single most important piece of advice I can give you, if stress is an issue, is every three hours, set your timer on your phone to go off every three hours like nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock and spend 60 seconds, one minute doing deep, slow diaphragmatic belly breathing. Perfect. If you will do that single thing, you will break, you'll break the hole that stress has over you. I, I, I kid you not.
1: Wow. Okay. No, I am really going to do that one um see steve is a lot more granola than i am so in the sense that he's <laughs> from california i
2: mean that in a very loving way darling right, so, because
1: he's he's in one room breathing and you're in the other room trying to write your life away before you well you're so much
2: and if there's anything i learned from my parents civil rights generation it's how much stress and strain especially did eat them up and burn them out and I see the same thing with activists today. So that generation didn't know about yoga so much or diaphragmatic breathing or, or the kinds of things that, that Steve is teaching me. So my parents couldn't teach me, but Steve teaches me a great deal about how to stay centered.
0: That's amazing. It's, it's wow. my it's my honor to take care of her. You know, I really do consider one of my,
1: my job
0: is to be a knight for my princess.
1: Oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> Black love, yes. My black um, knight. No, I...
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no, but I also think no. The other thing that's amazing about what you just said, though, Steven, is it. You sounded very sincere. You didn't sound like you were posturing, which is why, why I think that's so amazing. Um, and contrary to popular belief, real love isn't rare. We're just not looking for it. It's just some of the other things get who, get drowned out.
0: Who could be married? Who could be married to this woman and not adore her? I mean, seriously. I know what oh, I've got. Wow. Oh, <laughs> just, I, just, man, really? I
1: just heard him, So <laughs> I, hope, I hope my boyfriend's listening because this is amazing. Um, so, but, 20, but twenty-two years. I, twenty-two
0: years. This Saturday, we married. Right. We're oh wow! An anniversary.
1: Happy anniversary. Right. Happy Thank early you. anniversary. Um, one thing I wanted to actually talk about in, in Noir, which is an amazing, amazing um, documentary about the history, over a hundred year history of black expression in the horror genre. Tanra, if you said something very interesting that so much of real life, and I'm sorry if I'm not saying it exactly the way you said it, but so much of real black life is horror. I think that's I think that's how you phrase black it.
2: History, black history is black horror, is what I said right. in the documentary. And that's something that I was saying in my classroom too. And I don't mean the achievement part of black history. Uh, I mean, the stuff that the nation has really tried not to look at, has tried to pave over, and let's pretend that didn't happen in terms of the modern day lynchings we see now, the historical lynchings that we see in photographs, just the struggle, the constant struggle financially, emotionally, geographically, they don't want you in the building, they don't want you in the neighborhood, it's like you can't get the job. There's so much struggle and loss and trauma in our experience on these shores. So on one level, it shouldn't be surprising that so many black folks love horror. And and my mother was one of those people, my late mother, she passed on her love to me. I think because of the trauma she had suffered in the civil rights era, it was relaxing for her to watch The Exorcist, because that's not as scary as a police officer throwing tear gas in your face and that when she was 20 years old and then subsequently had to wear dark glasses basically the rest of her life, most of the time, even indoors mm. because of sensitivity to light. So that's real horror. Real horror is being afraid for your kids to have sons, being afraid to have grandsons, which she very specifically was afraid of because of police violence. It's not that it's limited to the boys, but, but the, the image of what frightens America most is a big black man. That is the boogeyman and the monster that, you know, don't get me started. So in horror noir, it was this great opportunity since Jordan Peele busted this conversation wide open with Get Out in 2017, I think it was, then yeah, let's look at the black horror that has come before Get Out, like Rusty Cundiff's Tales from the Hood in the 1990s, which was also racism as the monster, more vengeance in the themes in, in Rusty Cundiff's film. But we've had so many different kinds of black horror films, and I have to shout out Dr. Robin Armines Coleman, who wrote the book *Horror Noir*, that the documentary was adapted from. So once you watch it on Shutter and you fall in love with it, which I hope you will, definitely buy that book because we couldn't get it all in. It's a very, very rich history. But thank goodness Jordan Peele showed up because he's really brought it out into the open.
1: Well, also, and speaking of Jordan Peele, you. In your class, uh, which sounds amazing, I can't. I, I have to figure out a way to when when they turn the planet back on. And I want to come out to LA and sit in on this class. Um, you not only teach this class about Get Out, but then Jordan Peele came to your class one day. How did this all? How did that all come about?
2: Girl, Twitter. <laughs>
1: I love Twitter so much
2: because I spent I spent so, so much time there. I want to feel like I'm not wasting my time. But I, I, once I got permission from my department chair at UCLA to do this black horror class called The Sunken Place, I just started tweeting about it, and Evan Narciss, uh a reporter for IO9, wrote a story about it. I love uh, it, and Evan. It, Evan's amazing. And the day that story came out, I got followed by Monkey Paw on Twitter. I followed back. I said, Oh, wouldn't it be great if Jordan Peele came to my class, honey? Three weeks later, Jordan Peele was standing at my class because he immediately thought, Oh, ha ha ha. I could surprise them. This sort of mischievous side of him where he sneaks into the back of a classroom and that's what we set up. He showed up in a baseball helmet and a hoodie, right, honey? Steve was there to help me run security.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Basically what we did was we snuck him in. In other words, we had the lights down in her class while she showed a clip
2: where and rose is
0: dangling the car keys The rose is dangling the car keys so we snuck him into an empty seat in about the middle of the classroom the guy that was sitting next to that seat kind of looked at him with a little bit of suspiciousness but you know <laughs> nothing going on then when the lights yeah. came back up tananore said well what do you think the the filmmaker was trying to tell us about the commoditization of black bodies and a couple of hands went up jordan with who you know wearing in his under his uh, baseball cap and his hoodie uh raises his hand and she said, yes, that gentleman in the back, he stood <laughs> up. The, the class went berserk. I mean, <laughs> utterly berserk. people were running out of the room crying. And what
2: followed oh that was yeah, they just, were just so overwhelmed.
0: Yes. It was he had a brilliant conversation with the class. He was so giving and so open the man is genuinely brilliant genuinely humble just very very real um i just love this guy and,
2: and uh,
0: the, the kids were thrilled it was wonderful
2: one of those students i want to point out who was actually in one of the photos we took was named camille Oshindara, one of my top students absolutely brilliant she got an internship with monkey pop productions jordan peels company as a result of that class visit i submitted her name Child, within months, she was a cultural executive at Monkey Paw. So she is now a part of that company, making decisions That's on amazing. set. amazing. So exciting. Yes.
1: I actually had a conversation with my, um, my previous guest, Matthew Cherry, because he worked at Monkey Paw for a little bit. And I told him, I thanked him because I was on the red carpet for us. And I remember when I got on that red carpet, looking around and seeing all the brown folks, and I said, y'all did that because it's very rare on a red carpet to not just see brown folks, but for people to talk to us. And it was, it was amazing. They must've, and I said, it's like you send out an edict. And he said, I can't really confirm or deny, but we definitely made sure that <laughs> there was representation on that red carpet. Um, also, I bumped into the two of you after the us screening, uh, it was a while ago and I di- I didn't know that you'd already seen it. Apparently you had a private screening or something.
2: I mean, we may have had Jordan Peele invite us to a private screening, and I mean private, private—just the two of us, basically—and the guy who was running the the projector and and would make mm-hmm. notes whenever we laughed or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was great. We brought our own popcorn, and we sat on a sofa and watched it on an oversized screen, and it was just such a thrill. But you know, I That's was worried. Amazing. I was a little worried. I loved it. Steve loved it. But we were like, holy cow, this is so different from Get Out and it's twisty and turny and it really sort of asked the audience to ask questions. And I I was just super thrilled that audiences responded to it the way they did.
0: Yeah. I also felt that it was uh, Get Out more or less takes place in our world, whereas Mm -hmm. um, Us is a parable. It's a fairy tale. You're not, it does, it has dream, it has dream logic. It does not, it does not play by real world logic exactly. So the question I had was, are people going to be willing to chew this? Are they gonna be willing to talk about it afterwards? Are they gonna be willing to think? Because it it felt more like um, there was some Italian horror and and some Korean horror that, that has that sort of nightmare imagery logic to it. And it, it felt to me as if Jordan was tapping into that more than into the American tradition. It felt, you know, it it it, it felt it, different. You know, what we're what we're seeing is a is a mind that is trying very hard to find ways to encapsulate and convey thoughts that haven't quite been expressed in American entertainment. You know, so he's, he's quite remarkable. Mike.
1: I completely agree. And it's funny because, that you said, American, um, i talked to you a little bit before the show about how my mother's not from this country. She's from Bermuda. um, And I grew up watching very international things. Subtitles didn't bother me. I actually thought that's how you watch TV. I didn't know the words were not supposed to be on the screen. Um, And so it's funny. Everybody that I talked to that saw the movie that was an immigrant immediately was like, oh, yeah, it was about capitalism in America. But African-Americans, and not just African-Americans, but Americans didn't all take that. They're like, Oh, it's, it was this, it was that it was a, it was really more about the American family and how we're not looking at the black American family, the, the same way that we look at mainstream families. And I'm not saying that all those elements weren't in there, but I just thought it was really interesting how all of my like first gen friends were like, yeah, capitalism. That's exactly what that was. And how everybody else and Steven, you had a very interesting take on us. You just talked about the dream world. You, you thought the whole thing was a dream, right?
0: No, no, I said that it used dream logic. Ah. It by by dream logic, what I mean by that is in dreams your unconscious mind is throwing up symbols, you know, bits of information, snatches of, of, of words or images, and they have an emotional resonance that is not necessarily linear. It's not necessarily starting at the beginning and going to the end. You have to in order to interpret a dream, you have to be willing to ask, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And people who are cinephiles Will do that. They'll go to the coffee shop afterwards, and they'll have you know long mm-hmm. conversations about things. I think that us was chewy in that way. It was designed to trigger conversation. They weren't going to give you easy answers. He what he wanted to do was was evoke an emotional response. And that's in a lot of ways that's what art tries to do: is to create images, each of which triggers an emotional response. But in series, you're going from this emotion to this emotion, this emotion, and you're having an experience while you do that. So there was enough logic to this, to the storyline to engage you. But if you if you start asking questions about, well, where did they get their food? Who was feeding the rabbits? You know, and you know, how was it? Why was it clean down there? Where did their clothes come from? You're missing the point. You're missing the point entirely. So my feeling was that it was an extremely sophisticated piece of work was a much it was a much larger canvas than get out which was a much more confined film and in some Mm -hmm. ways was was more impeccable because it wasn't as experimental Uh, so you actually probably had more intelligence and talent on display in us because he was growing but the because the canvas was larger it wasn't necessarily as flawless as us what we're seeing here is is an artist who has the potential to be one of the greats? He really does. If he if he pull if he can pull off one more on that level, I will surrender. And right now I think he's brilliant, but yeah. I could go to think it, it. could Genius is right around the corner. He's very hey, he's very yeah. close in my estimation. He, he, I, that he could
2: he could be the guy. Listen, he was there for me with Get Out already. I just love that movie so much, um, yeah. and actually. Jordan Peele also asked me to write the introduction to his annotated screenplay to Get Out, which was a huge honor because I've been teaching it and wow. the, the perspective on how he was sort of dealing with white supremacy. But but Get Out is very different. You know, racism is the monster and it's more of a twist. And then you get that it's about white supremacy. It has some slavery and it. it's kind of hard to miss what it's about. And Steve is right. Us is a much more experimental film and to speak to like the differences and reactions that you got from various people who saw us. Uh, for black audiences, when I heard the synopsis of us, just a black family on vacation is menaced, I was there because I had never
1: well, seen- That's the
2: movie, that's the horror movie. horror <laughs> movie about a black family on vacation. I mean, that, it's yes. sim- if he had just had him in a winter cabin and there was some kind of unseen creature in the woods He still would have been making history with us. But then, no, he's just starting there. He's just starting with giving Lupita her first starring role. What? Okay, yeah, that was a thing. Uh, He's just starting with creating a black family in a horror movie. But then, like Steve said, he's expanded it to this this dream space and dream logic and asking all these questions. And I think for a lot of black Americans, they do think of race first, their isolation. They were the only black people there, Um, whereas, If if you're not so accustomed to thinking about race first, it's a little easier to see the anti-capitalist message in the movie.
1: And and that's what I think the immigrant thing part came from. I'm sorry, Steven, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead.
2: No, it's okay. Uh,
0: Get Out was clearly about race. It was about, you know, who are our allies? Can we trust anyone? And if you're white and you're watching, and I think the question is, has there been so much damage that we can't reach out and, and, and connect? Um, it's a very real question. i would never seen anybody ask that. But um, us, race is secondary to class okay. in, in, my, yeah. in my book. I think that it, although it impacts because I think anyone who is you know, upper middle class black and clearly that family was doing just fine in terms of their finances, starts wondering, are you leaving your neighborhood behind? Are you leaving your people behind? You know, and, and that fear that your comfort, your luxury, is could conceivably be considered to be based on the misery of others. Um, I think that you, you have to process, you know, what do you think about the fact that there is misery in the world? You know, how can you enjoy your wealth and comfort, you know, knowing that there are are people who are dying and suffering and starving and, and and hate you for what you have? Um, I, I think that that in both cases, he's dealing with real issues that he has, as he has been experiencing his life. Um, And that is what an artist does. They take their actual emotions and use them to power their work.
1: So I'd like to jump forward a little bit to Twilight Zone. Now, Twilight Zone, I know you're happy. Twilight Zone, uh, you both got to collaborate on an episode uh, season two, episode eight. So sorry for the confusion on social. It was episode eight, not episode two, um, called Small Town. It was starring Damon Wayne Wayne's Jr. And Damon Wayans Jr. plays a quiet church handyman who uncovers a magical scale model, imbuing him with the power to help him help his struggling small town. But the mayor takes all the credit. So I got to ask, is this part of that dreamlike metaphor that you were just talking about? Or were you Coming forward with an, another theme here.
0: No, I think that, given the basic premise of magic, in other words, you're in the Twilight Zone. So magic exists. We didn't have to justify why mm-hmm. why that thing was there. If you're going to watch a show called The Twilight Zone, you're prepared for that. So, given the existence of such a thing, the rest of it makes sense. I think you know. So you know, in any fantasy piece, you you have what what if there was a magical model? Okay um and you don't have to ask well how are they getting their food you know where are they getting their clothes you know stuff like that so it's it's not dream it's it's uh it's a fantasy story but given that the internal structure of it is is fairly logical
2: i think we saw some opportunities to try to shade it a little bit with political overtones but not too much we didn't want to be heavy-handed with it uh one thing for example even though it's set in a small town One reviewer mentioned in an article about the director, uh, Alonso Alvarez um, Pareda, that this is the kind of small town in TV and cinema that we're not used to seeing be a multiracial town, like where there would be a Black lead and a Latina across the street with her son. And frankly, that was very important to us at the script stage. And one of the most exciting aspects was to see how loyal they were not just, because you know, sometimes you write a character Black, Steve's been through this, and then they cast him white anyway, because it's just easier, and, or, and they, the race is not that important to the person who's doing the casting. But I thought race was very important, because I did not want it to look like it was this all-white town ganging up on Damon Wayans Jr., ganging up on right. one of boy. Um, And as it turned out, it's more of almost a utopian image of what, we can all be like if we work together and we put our divisions aside. So I kind of like, I like the way the episode came out.
1: And Steven, I've got to ask, you have a very special connection to Twilight Zone. This is not the first Twilight Zone episode that you have written. And I know I have some Twilight Zone fans in the chat. So please tell us, uh, tell us, tell us the connection.
0: well, it, there's more connection than I actually said to you because Twilight Zone was my favorite show when I was growing up. I grew up during the, you know, I'm I'm basically I'm you know just I've been around for a while, and uh, I was I watched the original Rod Serling run in, in when it was first broadcast back in the back in the early '60s, um, so and then the the first television I ever wrote was for the Phil DeGuerra revival of the Twilight Zone in the 1980s. So the opportunity to work on Jordan Peele's iteration of it was kind of a dream come true. I mean, I I just absolutely loved it. Um, And so there was a lot of emotion for me and a lot of meaning for me because it connects back with my childhood and with the beginning of my career.
2: I have to admit that I did not watch The Twilight Zone as a kid and really have only seen a handful, (laughs) don't hate me everybody, of uh, episodes uh, compared to probably some of you who are super, super fans. But the importance of this is not lost on me. So my excitement is, yeah, it's Twilight Zone, but mostly it's like, oh, it's Jordan Peel, though, because I'm such a fan of what he's doing in the industry and the opportunities he's creating. So that was my, I was like, oh, it's Twilight Zone. And I get to do Twilight Zone based on um, Jordan Peel's approach to, to storytelling and what he's trying to do. So that is super exciting. And it was a direct result of that classroom visit because we came at, you know, they invited us in to pitch. I mean, we're no fools. So we came in and we pitched and <laughs> we were probably in there two or three times um, before we finally settled on on which story and how to go forward. But it was a, a really, really positive experience. And just like Steve had his first TV credit uh, for Twilight Zone, my first TV co-credit is Twilight Zone. So there's that symmetry.
1: And actually, it's not a rev- to that end, how what was it like going from prose writing to a writer's room because you're kind of when you're prose writing you're kind of writing in solitude right
2: oh for the most part Uh, most of my novels are solo i've done some collaborations with steve i did a collaboration with my late mother but for the most part you're absolutely right uh it's a solitary undertaking and while i haven't yet really been in a television writer's room because we were freelancing I've learned the collaborative nature of screenwriting mostly because I collaborate with scripts uh with Steve on scripts and so all those lessons he had learned previously I was learning for the first time which is that you sort of have to agree on the vision and then you have to agree on the methodology so we do the one page, the three page, the 15 page, and then we go to script and all that is, is, a like he said, he has a regimented life and that's his approach to doing it. So when we're collaborating, that's what we do because you can't have one writer tearing off a head. Um, you, you have to agree on a vision when you're collaborating. So I just said in a meeting this morning that I have a mini writer's room at home, right? And that's what we do. And it's very, very different. That's probably the most different aspect of, television writing screenwriting versus prose and the other piece of advice i would give people who want to to make that transition cuz i just decided to make the transition because i wanted to be helpful and bringing some of my adaptations to screen that were stalling out you know to this point mm-hmm. i never had an adaptation on screen and i would see them stalling out at the script stage and it's like well maybe if i learn how to write scripts i think naively <laughs> that'll that'll help and it does help but at the same time there are a lot of executives and studios who are not that eager for the author to be involved in the adaptation process, so it's a little bit of a mixed bag, but I would say to any writer out there, take a screenwriting class. If you can't find a screenwriting class, then find scripts online and read them while you watch your favorite movies and start with short scripts and notice the difference between prose where you can go internal and hear their thoughts and screenwriting, which is all visual symbols and dialogue and And action.
1: as far as the writer not being involved in with the adaptation i don't think joe hill ever got that memo like ever well um, he's doing
2: great <laughs> that's one of my favorite shows right now it's not Parasu on amc
1: Nosferatu. um i yeah. just had jakara, jakara smith on the show a couple weeks ago maggie um, oh. <laughs> so i i'm curious about the show itself He's able to control things in this town with this magical scale model and the changes he makes seem very emotionally based. Um, he's, he's suffered a loss. Is this story really not about the town, but about his loss? I, I, I definitely wanted to explore that.
0: Stories, stories are all about two things. What is true and who am I? What are human beings? What is the world around them? So you have to start with what's going on inside him. So his backstory, having suffered that loss, gives him a a gap. There's something wrong, there's something missing. He feels some guilt, he feels pain and loss. So ultimately what the story will be about is what does he need in order to become a healthy human being who can move on with his life? And I think that his need to try to control to, because he was not unable to control his wife's death. So if he can control the, what's going on in the town just a little bit, then he's keeping her alive, she was mayor, and he's also taking steps to try to make the universe a more orderly place. It, the fact that it turns into a, a battle of wills almost between him and the mayor has to do with the fact that we cannot control, no matter what we do um there are always going to be factors by letting it be the mayor you're simply personifying that into an individual rather than just you know random random facts going wrong which then gives us uh, a personified opposition that's very easy to see you know it's it's, it's drama that is that is easy to understand it, it automatic once you create that opposition it automatically suggests scenes dialogue action and so forth and so on and it has its own arc but yes it's primarily about this man who is totally alone at the beginning, and the last shot, he's travel he's walking with what could conceivably end up being, you know, yeah. Anyway,
1: anyway,
2: spoil Oh, not I'm not really. say oh no, 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 no.
1: We can, we can spoil it. It's been out for a couple weeks. We have a thing. No, you can spoil it. It's been out for a couple weeks, and there was a homework assignment to watch it. So no, I don't play that. If, oh. if it had just dropped, if it had just dropped, and if you don't want to spoil it, it's fine. But if it had just dropped, I would absolutely say don't spoil it. But I think a lot of people in the chat here have seen it already. (laughs) So So I
2: Well, one thing I just wanted to say about um, that that, uh, butting of heads between the mayor and our character, Jason. By the way, Jason is named after our son, Jason. (laughs) Uh And one of the first things, one of the first things he said as he was watching it when he saw the model was, you should drop a rock on that. And then then the guy did drop a rock on it. So he was well named. But in any case, We wanted to have Jason as the character who's trying to rebuild, who's trying to come back from grief, but the mayor is basically someone who has been coddled and privileged and is incompetent to the position he finds himself in. So there were questions swirling around, is that Trump? I mean, that really, as political as I am, that isn't what was in my head at the time, especially because some people felt that Twilight Zone, the first season, had been a little heavy-handed at times with its messaging, so we were trying to be careful not to make anyone overtly Trump-like or anything like that. But of course it's hard, and especially in today's political climate with the election coming up, not to ask those questions about, you know, what is leadership? What is the difference between a leader who actually performs and one who only claims to perform? So I can understand why people would see some similarities.
1: Um, Emilio, the boy that basically it was the artist. What does he represent? I, I felt he represented the truth, but I don't, I, I wanted to hear it from the creators.
2: I would say absolutely. He is the truth teller. Um, art is our way of trying to tell the truth. Even when it's fiction, we're trying to say things that are true, even if they're not real Is something I tell my students. So Emilo is a kid who calls it like he sees it. He draws the mayor in caricature. He sees the giant spider instead of being weirded out. He's just full of wonder for it and puts it up as a mural. So, yes, I think Emilio does represent the truth. And also speaking for myself, that part of myself that is the artist. Um, that's why I, I like the child characters. Yeah, I would think that if
0: If one of the core human experiences is the creation of family is falling in love and and so forth and so on, that maturation process thing, then our lead character's lost relationship killed the concept, the capacity for him to have a family, you know, along that way. They can't go down that particular road in that way. Emilio might represent his own lost childhood, his own lost innocence, Mm. his ability to see and accept the miraculous with a sense of wonder rather than cynicism. Um, If I were to think about that, I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't think about the sim, I wasn't thinking about the symbol of who Emilio was. I was too busy thinking about who Emilio was as a human being and what he would want and how he would react and trying to create those relationships so that everybody was connected in some meaningful and emotionally resonant way um i didn't have the chance to kind of step back you know put put it aside for a month and look back and say well what are these symbols operating here television happens on, on too at too rapid a pace for some of the steps that you can take if you're working in a more leisurely fashion with a, with a piece of art
1: um i am so, also cur-
0: your other people it.
1: <laughs> i'm actually curious about something because the ending now it's so funny because so many shows and Twilight Zone is not one of those shows, but a lot of shows basically wrap up everything neatly in a bow at the end or you get all your answers. But at the end, the town is kind of I don't want to say it's jacked up, but it's a little different. But it's it, it not not even as a spoiler, just the imagery of the end of the show. When I look at some of the things that we're seeing on our screens now about what's actually you know, happening in, in different different areas, TV shows obviously are written way in advance of their airing. But what's it like looking back on this show and thinking about where your head's at heads were at when you started writing it when you went in for that second or third pitch and as opposed to now where the world is and it's and it's just aired
2: Uh if I can say in all honesty while there are a lot of things that surprise me about what's going on today the denial of the virus not wanting to wear masks things that never would have even occurred to me uh there are ways in which I'm not terribly surprised that things are going south, right? So this was in 2019. I think we started talking about the script in summer 2019, turned it in fall 2019. A lot of this writing was on the wall, even if we hadn't seen the virus and the mass demonstrations. And believe me, if we had had our druthers, there would have been more destruction of that town because we had to we had to peel it back for budget reasons. But just so y'all know. There was going to be a big fire <laughs> not like burning the whole town down but but one building in particular was going to be on fire and it was just too expensive i don't think anyone would care if i say that so
0: <laughs> it's true <laughs> yeah no, that's the reality of, of creativity in, in your head you can imagine anything but once it comes time to turn it into uh, an actual image you know it's it can be colossally expensive and logistically very very difficult so you have to be willing to roll with that you have to be willing to listen to what they can and cannot do in terms of production i mean heck i've had producers warn me that their actors you know could not be given difficult dialogue because they weren't really good actors i mean it's like well that's that's why are you hiring them
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) well in this particular case because they were gorgeous
2: Well, it's often the case, isn't that true? Yep, But in any case... We watch. One one thing I will add that has been a a profound lesson for me as a writer, and I did get to go on set for just a day, like right before everything shut down. It was one of the last things, one of my last trip was on set to see them shooting the interiors with Damon Wayans Jr. and the model and how understated his performance seemed from a distance. But in the camera, it's a completely different expression of the character. It's like, oh, so acting for the camera and acting for the stage, not the same at all. That's, what, that's a lesson I learned. And the phrase I took away with me is a, a whisper is a shout on the screen, mm. right? So we didn't need the big fire at the end. All we needed was a couple overturned cars, and you could see the mess. It was like they've got a big mess to clean up. That was the point of the fire, was they were going to have mm-hmm. a big mess to clean up. And it still mm-hmm. looked like a big mess to clean up without the extra expense. So that's something to bear in mind, that that symbols do carry a lot of power. Uh, visual symbols carry a lot of power on the screen.
1: Now, uh, there's a lot of questions in the chat that we're gonna get to in a second. I just wanted to ask one last thing before we, a couple last things before we get there. Um, all this renewed interest in Black horror and, and in Black storytellers. I mean, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we'd have, um, I think, Antebellum with Janelle Monae would be out, Chris Saw would be out, we got Candyman coming. Has there, you know, and I, I, I put your show and, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone in this same scenario. Are we seeing a actual renaissance again of black stories in in, in horror in, in particular? Or is Hollywood literally just trying to get another get out? Is the machine well, doing no. what the machine does?
0: The machine is doing what the machine does and there is a renaissance. You know, there so is a, a definite way. as more and more People of color are behind the camera. They influence the decisions that are being made. And as long as the audiences support it, that machine, that thing called Hollywood says, oh, there's money. Corporations are just big machines that eat money. I mean, they don't they don't have politics. The people inside them do. But what the machine wants to know is, can I make money if I do this? So if there are people in the machine who want to create images that appeal to their hearts and the audience rewards those images with money now you have a situation where you have a potential positive feedback you have enough filmmakers who have a chance to do something that a couple of geniuses can rise i mean 99 percent of what of anything is going to be crap so we have to have enough room to fail so we have to have some movies and and tv shows and books that make a ton of money so that a whole bunch of other people can make small projects have a chance to develop their chops and for the geniuses among them to rise.
2: Yeah, a lot of people wonder, will this last, can this last? Uh, When you say again, you're probably thinking about the 1990s, which gave birth to some of the other great black horror that we had. Um, Tales from the Hood, Death by Temptation, Candyman, you know, all these kinds of projects came out in the 90s. Although Candyman isn't quite black horror, that's a different conversation. But um, the question of whether it can sustain is an interesting one almost anyone who's in the industry a lot of you who are not in the industry know that there's a lot more attention on black folks in particular right now so your phone is blowing up your texts are blowing up your email if you're lucky people wanting to have meetings meet and greets what you got what can i get there's a a bit of a feeding frenzy right now looking for black projects that definitely will not last at this level in fact it's probably already tapering off (laughs) okay so um that's why the prepared were the winners in this case if you had a script that was already ready to go that you could send to someone if like like if you have say a podcast it's already amazing you can you can get in through the door um and it will be up to the creative community to continue to learn to grow to keep our projects like for instance if you want to write a film Make it under a million dollars. Make it under two million dollars so that you can earn that money back and and succeed upwards um, and not be a, a financial disappointment so that the next person who comes behind you can't get that deal. And one or two is not very much money, but ten million and under, I would say, is a good place to aim. Five million and under, Blumhouse is five million. So if they can do five million dollars projects, what's your five million dollars project? Know what the industry trends are know what a realistic budget is, study, 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 because when you get that opportunity, you want that script to be the best it can be, which means that you have labored over it, draft after draft after draft. You have had beta readers tell you what's wrong with it and then fix what's wrong with it. You have to be prepared. It really will be up to us to sustain because those doors are not gonna stay wide open, but enough of us can push them open. Or like Ava DuVernay said once when I invited her to Spelman, we can build our own doors.
1: There you go. I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. I mean, I I people when people ask me, you know, what can you bring to the table, I usually say, I bought the table. What do you want? (laughs) Like, I got a tape. That table's not the problem. (laughs) The problem is your perception. (laughs) Now, listen, one thing I wanna thank you both for, um, is you're not just talking about what you do, you regularly teach people how to do what you do, how to write hard, how to write screenplays, how to work inside the system. So I want to keep this class kind of going in the chat, take a couple, take a few questions and discuss this. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and sticking around. And then I, at the end, the very end, I want you to share how some of the classes that you have online that people can take, um, sure. One of the questions that's in the chat is how long did it take to get the story right? This is in terms of Twilight Zone, in terms of the fitting backstory, like the supernatural to the arc of the story. Um, how long did it take to basically whittle that down?
2: From the first pitch, from that first, like one and a half page pitch we sent. Yes. To the, the final draft mm-hmm. about what? Three months, honey
0: it's possible from you know
2: i think that I mean, once we got stand work that's some of that is waiting i'm right, sorry
0: right right just beating out the story which is a cr- critical importance um that was to the final script that's not uh, 3 months might be about right but I, in general i would think that saying it takes about a month to beat out a story would be about right kind of roughly
1: and uh What oh? What made you want to make it a small town, and how did you basically make that small town its own character?
0: Well, T, you want to say You want? Uh, You see that big grin
2: on my face? The only reason I'm grinning is that one of the projects Steve and I have worked on is several attempts to do adaptations of my novel *The Good House*, and even though I don't think I realized it consciously at the time, that small town setting. That I have in my novel has been something that I have so badly wanted to put on the screen. That there was a little bit of wish fulfillment in being able to set this story in a small town. I get the same visuals I would have had in, in a story about the good house. It's just a completely different story. That for me, we lived. I mean, we lived in a small town for years. So right. from a distance, I have quite a fondness for them. <laughs> you know,
0: the the initial idea was uh, dealt with a street. A, a actual like a cul-de-sac, um, but as we developed it, um, it seemed to me that an isolated town would work for us better—a self-contained unit. Uh, how large it should be, what should be a piece of it, whatever. One of the things that's very true is that I look for for symbolic resonance in in the things that I'm doing when I'm not really working with the nuts and bolts of characters. And the title of Small Town is a three-way punt you know the the it it takes place in a small town. The model is literally a small town, and th- it is a town that is small-minded in certain ways. So right. I like that. You know, it, it had it has what I call vertical integration in terms of, of, of the way the symbols are working together. And when you're working in a visual medium, in television and film, um, you need to be able to turn the sound off and still follow the story. So it. The way the visual Im- images interact is of critical importance. So it was very appealing in that sense. It, it felt neat, if, if you know what I mean.
2: And let's just keep it real. You know, for a lot of us, if we end up driving off the road in one of these small towns, we're just scared. <laughs> you know, it's not a place that sure. on the surface will often look welcoming because often there isn't any. Diversity in a town that looks like that, and that was another place where the producers were really faithful to the script. Uh, I think it was your line, Steve, where you said uh, it would. In order to be a one-horse town, first it would need a horse. And I yeah, heard you what? Know. <laughs> yes. Right, it would That's need to exactly. borrow a horse. Uh, we tried to write <laughs> clever wording in the script too, so it would be entertaining, even if it, you know, that isn't actually going to be on the screen.
0: Remember that your first audience is the person reading the script. That you have to entertain them. So I will actually, we'll actually put little jokes in the script to make them laugh, or, or phrase something in a way that would, that would scare them. And then when you do subsequent drafts, you deliberately change things up just a little bit to keep them entertained, so that they don't, right. you know, lull into a trance. Oh, I've read this. I've read this. I've read this. Oh, here's what I asked them to change. But you're keeping them alert because there's going to be a little nugget for them. There's going to be something, you know, that's a, it's a human being who's sitting there not a faceless you know, group. It's a human being with hopes and, and dreams and needs. And if they feel it, if they're feeling something as they read it, you have a much better chance of getting past it.
2: And just as an aside on the town itself, it's a little teeny mm-hmm. town in uh, British Columbia in Canada. And I first knew they were shooting the episode because I had a, a Google alert for Twilight Zone and or whatever and there were stories coming out of this town where the shoot was they brought like more than 200 people in the crew i think so the shoot itself had that impact on the economy that the neon sign did in the episode. Like they really were bustling at the coffee shop. They really were bustling at the gas station. They weren't laying people off like they usually did at that time of year. I was dying to actually go to the town, but they thought it was too logistically difficult and I ended up uh, seeing the interiors instead. But I would have been in hog heaven to be walking those streets through the streets. Yeah.
1: I also heard a story about they move certain things, set things around. Uh, like that you, they stayed true to the book to the point where I think when he's looking out the window, and he's supposed to see what the diner across the street, they move the exterior of the design, the the diner. Is that right? Or did I get that?
2: That was one of the things in the articles I saw. I was like, oh my gosh, there's the red sports car. There's the church. I mean, everything that we had written was coming to life before our eyes, but because the church in the real town was not across the street from the diner which they did paint orange, by the way, and which the town loves Ah. so much, they're going to leave it orange.
1: Oh, my God.
2: They (laughs) built a replica of the church. So when you see Jason walking into the church across the street from the diner, that is not the actual church. It's just an exterior replica. And they spent that money to build a replica for the church. Just so it'll be across the street.
1: That's amazing. Um, Another question was, Okay, what was it like collaborating on the story? More specifically, how did you divide the work or navigate creating your own system? So they're asking sort of more of the nitty gritty of how did you figure out who was going to write what, or are you so synergistic with the work that you've done before that you just know, oh, dialogue, me, exteriors, you, that kind of thing. No, no. Yeah, no.
0: Uh, No, no, no. Basically, um, we work out the story together and then one or the other of us takes lead to create the first draft. You can always tell which one of us does the first draft because that person's name comes first on the book or on the script. It's as simple wow. as that and then we rewrite together right so, so this is the Tennyson Hardwick novels Tanana Reeve's name goes first because you know we we decided that she should write the first draft on the Devil's oh. Wake novels or on this Twilight Zone script my name comes first because I went first in terms of actually creating the first draft
2: but but the real and and that's the 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 most difficult part of collaborating for me is breaking the story which is like when you both agree okay these are the things that are going to happen in the story these are the characters these are the character arcs at least as much as you can see up to that point because once you get to the end you're going to have to go back and make sure you know what all those character arcs are and that you filled up all the holes. That's the hard part for me is hammering it out to the treatment stage. One and a half pages, three pages, 15 pages. We both agree on every word of that. And it's tough. I wrote, I've written with my mother, I've written with my husband. I feel like I can do anything because I've collaborated with family members. <laughs> but um, what I get out of it in both cases and the ongoing relationship with Steve is two minds. You know, so sure, I can write scripts. I've written short scripts and I do little and I still write prose by myself, but I actually prefer to collaborate for television and film because there are so many aspects to think about that it helps to have two minds. It's just faster. We can write much faster as two people than I think most people could as one. Would you agree, honey?
0: I think that there's a good chance that that's true. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. If As long as one or the other of us feels enthusiastic about it, yeah. then you can kind of, you know, take, take the bit in your teeth and, and run. Like we just got finished um, doing the first draft on a horror script, and I got it started and worked out, we worked out the basic plot elements together. Uh, and then I began expanding it out in treatment form, which means, you know, continuing to flesh out scenes, a little bit of sample dialogue just kind of playing with it but then tananarive got antsy and um decided to just jump in with both feet and so for for weeks she was just you know she was just chewing away at it and so it was like oh i'm gonna do <laughs> stand back
2: and say okay right. go you <laughs> I mean, you had already gotten from beginning to end and laid out, you know, the, the, the scenes and expanded some of the scenes, but anyway, yeah, I had just finished my novel and that energy needed somewhere to go. So I was just glad the script was there.
1: Um, and when you're collaborating together, this is actually a question I have, it, do you have like a writing room? Is there a room that's got little index cards everywhere or are you both all digital and everything's in the computer and you're just sharing files back and forth? It's so funny you say that. Um, huh? It's
2: like she's seeing your office, honey. How does she know? Yeah, <laughs> got I've Post-its, got
0: it posters. I've got posters. I've got I've got a double sided whiteboard. I've got a cork board. I've got big, huge Post-it pads that I can scrawl on. The fact is that that every time you know, I will use Post-it notes. I will use index cards. I'll use, you know, all sorts of different things because every time you express a story in a different way, different things are revealed. So you can take the exact same information and put it all on index cards and you put it up on the Uh wall. Then, okay, you take what you've got up on the wall and you type it into a Google doc, you know, in the process of doing that, new things will be revealed. Then if I share that Google doc with Tananaree, then she goes in there and she adds things, things that, you know, I don't see. the, the way I write, it's I take this the position that the events actually occurred, they they really did happen, um, and I'm like a reporter who is investigating, researching, poking and prodding, trying to find out what is true, what was said, what was done, you know, why did it happen, you know, what happened after that, um, and I just keep prodding at it. I keep turning it around in my mind or on paper. I also will will print out. Uh, uh, a script rather than just working on it on, on, on the computer, because scripts look different on paper and stories, books look different on paper than they do on a computer. Um, and so every time I change from one way of looking at it to another way of looking at it, different things are revealed. And what I always look for is what I call the low-hanging fruit. Every day, I will look for the easy fixes. You know i i I never tackle the hard stuff first it's just i will do the easy stuff what i know is that in the back of my mind there's a problem solving machine and in the process of doing the easy stuff i'm getting more and more familiar with the project so that my dream time will actually start coming up with some of the answers and i will wake up in the morning with answers to questions that i posed myself the previous night so it's 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 getting more and more familiar with your creative creative process. Your, your creative process is like a cat. It's not a dog. It doesn't just come when you call and do tricks.
1: I can't, I can't, I can't, Steven, you are validating my life right now. I can't be, first of all, first of all, I now know how to meditate and how to breathe. So that's first, so I'm not gonna be stressed out anymore. Second. Great. I, I know my boyfriend is watching this. Honey, this is why I have notes everywhere. It's not about the note, it's about the fact that I'm getting it out of my head. That's why yes. I have nine million notebooks. And then I sit down and my new thing is, is actually um, reading my notes into Google. So the act of oh, saying great. it is, yes. the, uh, yes. Google has dictation, the act of saying yes. it gets my thoughts out and and then that's another round. And so you are Just validating everything I'm are doing.
0: <laughs> Look, here's the critical thing. You have to find your way of doing it. You want to talk to lots of different writers, people who are successful, ignore what, ignore what the wannabes say, because there are a thousand ways to get lost. And when you're trying to get to Disneyland and only one direct way to get there. So the, the, the patterns, the beliefs, the behaviors that will optimize your life in any particular arena are always going to be known by the people who are there. So if you talk to them, so I've said a bunch of stuff to you. If I give you a hundred ideas and one of them sparks your own idea, you don't have to take anything that I'm saying, but, but you'll say, Oh, I could do that this way. I could do that this way. This everyone has to, has to find their own way up the mountain. And every time and the it. mountain changes a little bit.
2: I just, to yes, I just want to add to that.
1: Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry to
2: that. Let me say as a preface that anybody who's out there feeling down on themselves, mad at themselves because they're not creative right now because of everything that's happening in the world, that is fine. Maybe this is your time to be gardening. Maybe this is your time to really, really bond with your children, your cat, to binge watch, do not feel bad. But if you want to be creating, and you're still feeling stuck because of emotions or because you're between projects and you don't know how to get back into one, one of the methods we teach under what we call our life writing program is a sentence a day. So I'm not saying everyone out there has to write a sentence a day, but if you want to write and if you're stalling, start with that philosophy, just as long as you've done your one sentence, you have fulfilled your obligation to yourself, but the trick is, after a couple days or maybe even the first day, you'll find that you can't stop after the first sentence. You have to keep going. That's how I got through my novel outline. I just spent seven years on a novel. I got through the outline a sentence a day. I got through the project when I didn't feel like working a sentence a day. Um, the screenplay that we Steve was talking about, I wasn't that excited day one. I was like, oh, this is typing. This I wanted to be in my novel. I didn't want to be working in this new thing. So a sentence a day, that's all you, and then eventually, the fire lights, the inner child is like, oh, this is fun, and you're off to the races. That's how it is for me. Uh, I, I know some writers never feel that love and joy. i like, oh my gosh, two hours went by, uh, but, but I do get to that point, but it's not always like that by any means.
0: But you can and, increase the, you can increase ahead, the percentage sorry. of times that you go into flow state. You know, what you want to do is to go into flow state and you can, you can refine that capacity by addressing it directly. Tai Chi, yoga, you know, distance running in any kind yeah. of dancing, you know, so in is, anything, is, anything that gets you in the is flow, flow state.
1: state is flow state. Like the writer's avatar state is this like, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, it's a state where time, time begins to disappear where you, you're, you're, you're not aware of stuff happening outside. You're just, you're there in the thing in the th- and it's happening to be quite honest. You know, we I think we're all adults here. You, everybody experiences flow state at least three different times. I can think of one is just before you go to sleep in what's you enter into what's called the hypnagogic state. The second one is when you're first waking up in the morning, same thing. And the third one is when you're making love, quite frankly, that sense of two bodies dissolving and becoming one that's the, what they call the dissolution of the, of the, the us, the I-thou relationship. It's no longer two separate people. It's like one person, this thing is happening. That's what you want with your painting, your dancing, your writing, that, that your brain is moving into the space. And your ability to do that, everybody does that at times. We go into that dream state, when we're watching movies and television and reading books. It, it works the other way too. You can learn to go into that state when you are creating movies and television and books creating that connection between your skills and your capacity to access your skills in a flow state, naturally, spontaneously. That's what, you know, that's what you you are you aim at at any high level activity. Uh, so you seek out people who have, are masters of that and ask them how they do that. And you will learn things that you can then apply to your discipline.
1: I gotta thank you so much this has been like an amazing class like i I could talk to the two of you for like another two hours but we don't have time to do that here but i do want you to tell folks where they can learn from you please share uh i personally am taking uh i just did this i just downloaded your afrofuturism course um so i'm and i just started it and i'm super excited um But if you could talk about that course, as well as the other one that you were just talking about, we'll try and put some uh, links in the chat here. So www.afrofuturismwebinar.com.
2: Afrofuturismwebinar.com was basically taking my UCLA class and offering it to the public. But Steve and I co-teach it, it's 10 weeks. The literature, music, including Janelle Monae, uh, and film of Afrofuturism. So it's sort of an intro course. That's ten weeks. We have an ongoing writing class called www.lifewritingpremium.com, which is a monthly subscription where you get essays and videos and lectures to not just address your writing skills, but the life of the writer. And Steve, maybe you want to talk about the www.writerwebinar.com.
0: Yeah, t- we do a we do a, a free. Um, life writing life writing is applying Joseph Campbell's model of the hero's journey to your own life and the process of writing as well as to the plot. So it's, 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 it's my baby. I, I created it about 30, 30 something years ago. Uh, and life writing live is an online webinar that we do, you know, about four times a month, really. And you, you can, you can see it on our, our pages over on Facebook. Or we're setting it up so that it can be seen on YouTube at www.writerwebinar.com. and the next yeah. episode will be on tomorrow. Uh, that'd be July 29th at 6 p.m. Pacific, and so you'll be able to see that there. And if you go to writerwebinar.com, you'll find our website, you know, our 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 uh, Ma- the Mastery Plus YouTube channel, in which there are just tons of videos and lots of information oh, we yeah. give away as much as we possibly can we really do. And you can also join our life writing group over on Facebook. We've got hundreds of people in there who are all, we're we're all engaging with this process called how can we live high energy, healthy, creative lives.
1: I'm going to have to join that Facebook group. I'm not, I'm, I'm not on Facebook like that much. I do. I am there. I have a presence there, but Facebook can be not so nice to black girls yes. who like comics. So sometimes I'm not there as much, but I am going to find my way into uh, that uh, group. Be welcome. That sounds like, thank you. It sounds like it's also very nurturing. Thank you both so much for joining me. This has been an amazing, amazing um, episode. Aren't they amazing? I'm so happy that Tanana Reeve and Steven visited the show. And I'm going to put in the show notes links to some of the stuff that they were talking about, including horror noir, the Twilight Zone episode that they wrote, the new news about the horror noir TV show. And in fact, you could just subscribe to the Blur Girl newsletter and get all this information in one place. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And don't forget the self app can help you raise your credit score. I have a link in my show notes for that as well. Thank you so much for joining me and please leave a comment on iTunes. It really helps the show. Please subscribe. And also, you know, if you wanted to go the extra mile, take a screenshot of this episode, tag the blur girl on Instagram or Twitter, or TikTok, wherever you are, and let me know what you thought. Thank you so much for joining me, and I can't wait to share the next episode.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.